In this episode of Lunch with Food FM, Alison Swan Parente, founder of the School of Artisan Food, talks to Matthew Hollingworth, country director in South Sudan, for the World Food Programme, over a virtual lunch about his life and extraordinary work. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, Matthew. Hi. It's incredibly kind of you to spare the time to talk to Food FM here. The conceit is that we're going to have lunch together, but the practicalities are pretty daunting uh, because you're in the city of Juba in southern Sudan, a landlocked and relatively newly formed state in Central East Africa. And I'm here in leafy Sherwood Forest. I just wondered if you'd like to tell me a little bit about what it feels like at the moment to be in Juba, what it's like in your office, what you can see out of your window, all of that kind of thing. So South Sudan at this time of year is facing the rainy season, but as always in the tropics, you have moments of beautiful sunshine surrounded by you know, trees and forests and greenery. Uh, and then that's then typically followed by a downpour of rain in the afternoon. So luckily right now it's sunny and clear, and green and quite fresh. So it's a good time to be alive uh, in Juba today. Oh, excellent. Now, not all of the Food FM listeners will know what the World Food Programme is. Uh, And I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about its background, you know, when it was founded and a little bit about its history. Sure. So, I mean, the World Food Programme is one of the largest humanitarian organisations in the world today. Um, And since uh, 1961, when we were formally established, um, we uh, have been on the forefront of providing food assistance, food aid, relief, resilience building activities and development activities related to improving people's food security around the world. So we are present in 82 countries around the world. We feed literally hundreds of millions of people today, unfortunately, who are afflicted because of disasters, man-made and natural in terms of of the cause. Um, And we are a a staff of of more than 15,000 people strong. Um, I I guess our most recent accolade is that we received in 2020 the Nobel Peace Prize for how we have worked on alleviating hunger around the world and trying to contribute to peace Uh, in unstable, insecure environments um, where people sadly um, face starvation and hunger because of war. Now, talking about your younger self, I wonder what you were doing when you were 16 that would have given you some clue as to how you would end up doing what you're doing now, talking to me about this extraordinary work that everybody's doing for the World Food Programme. Well, at 16, I was still at school um, and uh, probably hoping for a career that would take me around the world. I was, I am the son of a, of a former uh, military officer. So I spent a good deal of my life traveling around the world. Um, and I was bitten by that bug, that sort of gypsy bug to, to see other parts of, of the world and, and, and other countries. Um, so I knew I wanted to do that, which probably meant Around the age of 16, I was I was considering a career in the in the army. But I instead of that, when I actually when I graduated or before graduating from university, I had the opportunity to travel to Bosnia in the days 
literally straight after the peace agreement in uh, in uh, former Yugoslavia um, to work rebuilding uh, orphanages um, and providing support to to children who'd been orphaned through the war. Um, and I then decided there and then that actually uh, a life in humanitarian assistance, humanitarian aid, um, was more preferable than the life in the military. Okay, that's really interesting. So you started in this career, and I just wondered um, what you considered the most important events in your own career, which led up to you doing what you're doing now uh, in South Sudan. What was it that led you to get to South Sudan to do this? I mean, shortly after I graduated, I, uh, I worked in a number of countries. As I said I worked in Bosnia, I worked in Lebanon, I worked in Kosovo when the crisis in Kosovo uh, started uh, in 2000. And I came across uh, a chap one evening uh, in, a, in a bar, obviously, um, who was telling me that the best job he'd ever had was working for this organization in the United Nations called the World Food Programme. Um, that he, you know, our headquarters is in Rome, and he was, he was based out of Rome and, and spending uh, nine months of the year deploying to emergencies, um, helping people after earthquakes and, and droughts uh, and typically natural disasters in those days. Um, and it was the most exciting work he'd ever had. And so I thought to myself, well, this sounds just the sort of thing for me. Um, so I, uh, I got myself a, a master's degree for a lot of work um, at Cranfield University in the UK in supply chain management and logistics which we figured uh, would be very useful to an organization that feeds uh, millions of people each year and moves food around the world. Um, and sure enough, um, they thought that was a good idea too. And I was recruited almost directly out of, uh, out of when I finished uh, uh, my master's degree. Uh, and since then, I've, I've now spent 20 years with the World Food Programme working all over the world. I mean, I've, I've worked in, in Afghanistan and Egypt, Iraq and Lebanon and Libya, Syria, Sudan, Haiti, Myanmar, Philippines, Somalia, all over the world. Good um, <laughs> Yes. And uh, I, I mean, I, I can honestly say the sort of the idea that that 16 year old had of, of traveling and seeing interesting things and, uh, and hopefully uh, doing, you know, some good in the world. Um, I can honestly say, I, 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 I think I feel like that is the case and still is the case. I mean, I'm 20 years into a career, but a career that hopefully lasts a good deal longer. So um, I, I certainly, um, the World Food Programme has been a, a great place to work for the last two decades. I have to say you sound very <laughs> cheerful about it. <laughs> well, I mean, if you enjoy your work, I guess that's, uh, that's probably the most important thing if you're going to stick with a career for as long as I have so far. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the actual nitty-gritty of what you're doing with food in South Sudan. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what it is that you're providing people with, where you get it from, how you get it there, the actual food that you're delivering to people who are hungry. I know that there are lots of causes of hunger and that that will be quite interesting to talk about a bit later. But I just wanted to know about the actual logistics of where you're getting your supplies from and how they're getting to people and what they are. 
So South Sudan's food needs are great. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about a country um, that has suffered decades upon decades of war. Um, I mean, since, since Sudan's independence in 1955, they went through a 16-year civil war, then a following 22-year civil war. Uh, and now since independence, um, some 10 years ago, they've been at war with themselves for at least six or seven years of that. So, I mean, this is a country in, in desperate need with you know, phenomenal uh, challenges to ensure that its population can, can actually feed itself. And it's a country that, that doesn't produce sufficient food to feed themselves. I mean, last year, South Sudan uh, had a bumper crop, um, but was still around half a million tons of cereals. So uh, in our case, sorghum and maize, short of what it needs to feed itself so it's it's a it's a country that has been devastated for from from uh, instability for so long um and is trying to get itself on its two own two feet in terms of being able to feed itself so what we do um is we bring uh, we try to bring around 320,000 tons of food a year uh, into south sudan um to feed around 5 million people who are the most vulnerable in terms of the food insecure and impoverished. We buy that food primarily in the region that we work. So we tried very hard as the World Food Programme to buy from uh, countries um, that are in the developing world as opposed to buying only from wealthier, richer countries. So the big difference between you know, the World Food Programme in 1961 uh, when we were created to today is that in the 60s it was very much about moving food surpluses from rich nations to poor nations today we are trying to help developing countries uh, help themselves and so we buy a lot more from our uh, from the region so for example here in south sudan we buy a lot of food from the sudan we buy food from kenya uganda tanzania um, and when we need to, we also buy food from, from further afield um, that needs to be shipped into, into ports in the region so we can bring it here. I mean, the, the, the complication of South Sudan, of course, is that it, it's a country with a, a paucity, a lack of infrastructure that I have seldom seen in any of the countries I listed earlier um, because I mean, it is so vast. Um, I mean, South Sudan's five times bigger than England. And yet we have uh, less than 200 miles of tarmac road in the entirety of the country. And like I said, in times like this, in periods of the year like this, during the rainy season, around 60% of the country, uh, you can't reach by land uh, because it's uh, the roads or the, the tracks are awash uh, and you need to find other ways to, to deliver. So we use just about every means of transport to bring food around the country, you know, whether it's boats, canoes, barges down the River Nile, the White Nile, helicopters, when we are desperate aircraft to do airdrops, and um, we have all-terrain vehicles that can cross marshes and, and flooded areas. Uh, I mean, th there's, no, there's no form of transport that we don't try in this country to use to ensure that we're not cut off from people and we can deliver. But, but our biggest challenge, of course, is that with that enormous amount of food, we, we try very hard to pre-position food uh, in areas of the country ahead of the rainy season. 
So every year we have, we have uh, around 200,000 tons that we move to, to more than 150 locations so that uh, we don't have to rely on more expensive forms of transport when, uh, uh, when the rains start. Are there big security <laughs> issues around that? Well, sadly, yes. Um, I mean, as I said, I mean, South Sudan's 10 years old. Um, it's, a, it's a fledgling nation, the youngest in the world. Um, and in, in during that 10 years, um, there's been more than six years of, of civil war. Um, we have a national unity government. We have had since February 2020. Um, and so at the, the national level, there is a peace agreement and it's holding. However, we have sort of sub-national conflicts all over the country. Um, there are 10 states in South Sudan, and you'd be hard-pressed to find one of those states where there is not some form of localized fighting, inter-community fighting, or, uh, or sub-national political fighting um, taking place. So it is, it's, it's a very complex place when it comes to the insecurity. The government is challenged to ensure uh, that it can deal with crime and banditry in the country. So that's also a, a, great, a great trial for us. Um, and, you know, it, it, this is one of the more dangerous countries in the world to live. Um, and certainly as, a, as humanitarians, we've, we've lost humanita 130 humanitarian aid workers um, since the independence of the country, killed in the line of, of duty, delivering uh, relief of some form or another around the country. That's extraordinary. I presume you also have a real challenge with things like um, COVID and uh, climate. I mean, the challenges mount upon each other, don't they? That's it. I mean, it, you know, it's an accumulation of problems that the, the poor citizens of this country face. I mean, climate change uh, and displacement because of climate uh, issues is a major problem in the country. We've just, we've been through now, or we are in the third year of uh, sort of unprecedented flooding around the country, which is very much to do with climate change. Um, you know, the floods of 2020 and 2019 were the worst the country had seen in more than 60 years. Um, we've had terrible floods again this year. It displaces, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. This year, 450,000 people are affected by the floods. Last year, it was close to a million. And, you know, those are challenges that, that, that people face. Sadly, at the same time as facing floods in parts of the country, we face droughts in other parts. Um, so, you know, just about every kind of natural disaster is felt here. Um, and of course, what tends to happen is that, you know, displacement means being homeless. It means you're having to run away to, to bring your family, to move away from, from your place of origin, your village, uh, to higher ground, to, to drier areas or to areas that, where there is still uh, pasture for your animals if, they can, if, if they've survived. And every time people are displaced, they're typically displaced into other people's territory. And when that happens, you have this terrible situation where there are, you know, there can be a competition for, for scant resources, whether that's water or pasture or uh, food. And that, that helps to, unfortunately, make the place even less stable. So, I mean, it's, it's, to be a South Sudanese um, is, is, is very difficult. And I mean, the resilience of the people that we work with and for is, uh, I guess, I mean, it's one of the things that inspires you to continue to do what you do. 
because I mean, you know, the strength of the South Sudanese people who face so much uncertainty and so much, uh, uh, you know, the consequences of, of war and, and natural disasters, um, it really is uh, quite something to, to experience and, and an amazing people to work with. I can imagine. It must be pretty hard to keep morale up among uh, humanitarian workers too. Well, I mean, I, I would actually say for the vast majority of people, um, there's a lot of dedication to the work we do. Um, and there's a great deal of, or, you know, that, that you gain and get back from doing what we do um, because you can genuinely see um, the, you know, the, the, the fruits of, of the labor of the organization in terms of in areas where we are able to help people um, clearly when they're in, in immediate need, but also, you know, to, to, to create their livelihoods, to, to, to improve their, uh, you know, the, 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 the lot of their family and their communities. Uh, and we have, I mean, you know, just as we see terrible need in this country, we've also seen improvements in, in other parts, you know, more stable areas, uh, areas where people can uh, make a living and, and do better for their family. So, you know, it's, it's difficult, but um, it's a job that, that, that gives a lot back, I think, to people that do it. And, and the other thing is that, that aid workers, I mean, you know, we are, we are professionals in what we do. So um, you focus on the job, uh, you focus on uh, ensuring the impact of what we do is lasting and effective um, and you don't necessarily focus on on the failures other than to learn from them. I just wondered, talking about the stable areas, whether you could tell me a little bit about um, the staple food and regional food in South Sudan. I don't have a, a, a really sense of the kind of food that people are going to be eating every day when there is enough food. Do you know much about regional cooking in South Sudan? Um, I've, I mean, I've actually uh, had the pleasure of working uh, in South Sudan. This is actually the third time I've worked here, um, and I've been here for two years. And before I was here, I, I worked in the Sudan, so in the north. And obviously, there's, I mean, they were once one country, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, of commonality in the food. Um, so in the last five years, I've eaten an awful lot of Sudanese food. <laughs> so there's a lot I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, the mainstay of the diet um, in both countries is from sorghum that that's the main uh, um, cereal here not not wheat so that there there is bread eaten in cities but in most places they they produce either um sort of the iconic um flatbread pancake uh, which is called kizra which is made from fermented uh, sorghum or millet flour and then the other thing they do with sorghum is they 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 bash it into uh, a sort of very solid porridge uh, which is called a cedar, um, which, I mean, I'm sure you have listeners who come from different parts of Africa. It's a bit yeah. like ugali yeah. or a bit like fufu. Um, it's kind of a solid porridge that is eaten. And both dishes, whether it's kisra-based or, or a cedar-based, are eaten with stews, you know, uh, which may or may not have meat with it, but uh, have uh, mulakhia, which is uh, jute mallow, which is kind of a, is a, a green leafy vegetable, which uh, creates a sort of very gluey, like substance, um, which some love and some don't, a bit like okra uh, or bamia. They also are big oh, okay. fans of that. <laughs> um, and you make stews with that. You typically ground peanuts, um, ground nuts, which are grown all over South Sudan, 
Um, you grind the nuts into it as well to make a, a you know, a, a, a gravy for the for either the Kizra or the Asida. Um, and the nice thing, of course, about eating in both Sudan and South Sudan is that you always eat together with people. You, you never eat alone. People eat from a common dish. Um, they sit together and eat together and talk. Um, you eat with your right hand. Um, and, you know, it becomes, it's, a, it's really a, a very sociable occasion to eat together. Do men do any of the cooking? Ooh, it's very seldom. It has to be honest. I mean, I, I think uh, there are dishes that are sort of that, that can be made by men, um, particularly you know dishes with beans, um, fava beans, pool, uh, often made by men and not women. But predominantly in a home, in a family, it's women uh, do all of the sort of domestic work. And I remember domestic work includes you know walking a few miles to find wood or, or you know looking after the, the family uh, homestead the little farm that, that will produce some of the food that they will eat um as well as the cooking and looking after the children and everything else so it's it's uh, primarily women that do most of the work and very importantly that's why and, and, and important to say when we design our programs with communities we are very, very clear that we want women from communities to help us design the kinds of programs we will will roll out with their community because it's women who will do the work and women um, who will almost certainly be the ones, the change agents for their, for their community. When you are sending food aid in, as it were, are you sending in sorghum and staples that people would be having anyway or do you have to send in different kinds of food that people wouldn't be so familiar with it's a good question and, and around the world wherever we work we try very hard to uh, sort of identify uh, the four or five key commodities um that are not only going to provide um you know a good nutritious calorific uh, um, food uh, basket but is also going to be acceptable to the culture where we're working. So yes, in South Sudan, um, we are we are predominantly bringing sorghum to the country or uh, maize, um, which can be also uh, eaten in other part, in, in parts of particularly the southern belt of the country. Um, but we also bring in you know iodized salt as uh, we it's it's a key commodity that's that's very scarce in the country. Vegetable oil. Um, and pulses. In, in our case, the pulses here, the beans that we typically provide are lentils or yellow split peas. Um, and then you can ensure that people have a balanced um, diet of, of, uh, of carbohydrates and, and protein. And of course, we bring in vegetable oil as well um, as the fat, um, which is typically boosted with vitamin A. Um, for children in particular, um, for our nutrition programs, because malnutrition is a very significant problem here, we have a number of commodities that we use um, to to try and prevent malnutrition, and those are fortified porridges um, that 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 are typically fortified with with soya and milk powder, um, high energy, um, high calories, um, high in protein to to help children to to grow up healthily, um, and we have emergency products as well, which tend to be nut based. Um, to to support um, children who are who are um, facing moderate severe uh, malnutrition, so um, various commodities brought in, all of which 
are sort of you know culturally known uh, and and that communities are very aware about i think one of the important things that we've done certainly in my two years in south sudan is we have actually identified one region of south sudan where um because of you know economic decline because of lack of markets a lot of the food there in particular sorghum was being grown and then sold across the border um, to to uh, brokers uh, in the north in Sudan. So what we've tried to do now is make sure that those farmers uh, have a market here. We are buying um, sorghum in significant quantities, 40,000 tons this year, um, to be used uh, in our relief programs in South Sudan, but it's grown in South Sudan. Um, the idea being to, to incentivize those farmers to grow more. So uh, although the vast majority of that 300,000 ton plus uh, um, commodities that we bring into the country is from outside, we're starting to see um, now the ability to buy more that's grown here inside South Sudan as well. That sounds really hopeful. <laughs> Can you just tell me a little bit about problems with water? and whether you have to provide clean water in some cases, or is it always a question of helping people find clean water? Water sanitation and hygiene uh, are three of the greatest uh, challenges uh, in the country. Um, you know, you, we have a wetland in South Sudan, which is one of the largest in Africa, the Sud. Uh, and of course, it's the Sud, the, the Sudan, and, and in our case, South Sudan was named after. And, you know, we have the White Nile flowing throughout uh, the country from south to north, you know, from the borders with Uganda up to the border with Sudan, um, and many other tributaries and, and significant rivers. So this is not a country, uh, as you would see in, in many parts of Africa, that has, you know, poor water uh, availability. But it is a country that has poor clean water availability. Mm. So there is a massive challenge that um, various organizations in, in the humanitarian community uh, try to resolve in trying to show and help communities find ways to um, clean their water um, and ensure that, that the water that's available for them um, isn't uh, um, affected with parasites and, and, and other uh, issues. But that's very, very difficult when um, you know, there is not uh, a single part of South Sudan where open defecation is not a problem. I mean, you know, frankly, um, you know, in a place with no uh, with no roads, you also have a you're also talking about a place with very few toilets, as it were, or or insufficient pits um, for uh, you know to be used. So you have a lot of open defecation. The moment you have that, and you have floods, and you have droughts. Um, it gets into the water supply and you, you have very significant problems um, with waterborne diseases. Um, diarrhea is one of the main causes in children of, of malnutrition. Um, so clearly there is this very close link between food security, nutrition and health and sanitation. It's, it's a huge challenge and one that, uh, honestly speaking, we, we are as a community having trouble with because the needs in South Sudan, uh, South Sudan are so great. Um, and the funds which are required are so are so uh, great, um, and you know it's it's a persistent uh, problem. Um, you you I mean you do find that that uh, uh, it's the simple things like uh, you know being able to have access to soap and clean water that can make 
the biggest differences to to communities in this in this country. How interesting. I think that uh, at this point, we have to have lunch together, Matthew. And I don't know what you've brought to lunch, but I'm bringing, uh, I, th I thought about this quite carefully and I thought what I would do is try and have for my lunch with you, the most nutritious thing that I could think of, which is actually egg on toast. So that's what <laughs> I'm having. <laughs> what are you having? Well, I, I'm going to have probably not, not the most healthy thing that, is, is, that South Sudan is famous for, um, but probably one of the most delicious, and that is mundazi. Now, mundazi are fried donuts, essentially, that, that are very common as a street food across South Sudan. And it's, it's the one thing that you'll find always available um, in, in little kitchens uh, by the roadside. And yeah, as a quick, as a quick lunch, it's, uh, it's a great one to have when you're on the run. Is it sugary? Well, uh, typically not, but you can put sugar with it or you can you can have it with savory things. They're, they're, they're sort of they're triangular in shape donuts and you can break it open and fill it with, uh, with uh, lentils or you can fill it with, indeed, you can put some jam in it. Uh, you can have it with, with, uh, in, in areas where there's fruit availability or you can put a little bit of sugar. I like mine with a little bit of sugar. <laughs> and is there much fruit availability in the country? So in the green belt, in the equatorias, there are um, certainly seasonally wonderful fruits uh, available. So mangoes and papayas, um, bananas, um, but they're not necessarily available throughout the year and they're not necessarily available uh, in all parts of the country. Um, but I mean, mangoes, I mean, when mango season uh, is in place and we're just sort of uh, starting to see some mangoes now, but they're not quite ready. Um, then those are the best, that's the best fruit to, to, to find across South Sudan. And do you actually go to the market and buy your food? What Are there big food markets in Juba? Absolutely. So you have the largest uh, market in, in Juba is called Konyo Konyo Market. Um, it's famous uh, across the, the whole country. It's one of the biggest markets in, in South Sudan. And they have everything. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a typical open all um, bustling, crazy uh, market of East Africa. Um, it's, I mean, obviously with, with COVID-19, um, there are a number of, of restrictions in place uh, trying to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Some uh, stick with it uh, very keenly in terms of wearing their mask and trying to, to, to keep some space between each other. Many don't. I mean, uh, let, we have to be very honest in, in South Sudan. Um, you know, there are a hundred ways to die in this country before COVID-19, and now there's 101. Um, so people are not always as careful as they should. But the market's still open, and you can, if you're careful, uh, around the sides of it, find some wonderful things to buy um, in terms of fruits and vegetables, at least. And you feel completely safe in the market? Uh, yes, I think so. I've, I've been many times, um, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily go after dark. But uh, during the daytime, not a problem. Uh, and has COVID-19 been been a real problem? I mean, clearly it's a real problem. Uh, but have there been a, a large number of cases in South Sudan? Honestly speaking, to know if there was a large number of cases, we'd have had to have had a big testing campaign. And we haven't. I mean, you know, we, we, we testing in South Sudan is primarily for people that travel. So yeah. if uh, South Sudanese citizens, particularly in here where I am in, in central Equatoria, 
many have family in Uganda um, from the days when they were displaced during during the, the various civil wars of the past. Um, and so people move between South Sudan and Uganda, South Sudan and Kenya to see family. So those people will get tested because if they don't, they can't travel. Um, oh, okay. The vast majority of the population are not getting tested. And certainly in the periphery, in the, in, in the areas around the country, uh, that's very much limited, just as it's very limited in terms of, of the number of people who've been able to be vaccinated. I mean, I think we, we so far, uh, there's around 50,000, 55,000 vaccinations have been com completed and a new round of 60,000 is happening. Um, but in a population of 12 million, that's a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Just uh, while we're eating this uh, mythical food here, I wondered if I could um, mention that I've heard people suggest that there's um, a danger in a country with such an emerging uh, and a fragile infrastructure that big agencies like the World Food Programme, but other aid agencies too, might be coming to the rescue all the time and therefore really undermining the resilience of the state or of the government. I mean, it's a huge question really about what kind of support one can give and, and how it's given. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about it. Oh, I mean, obviously, uh, there's nobody that works in the aid and development sectors that is not acutely aware of um, what can be a dependency on what we provide. Uh, and the need for us to ensure that we do you know, not not you know that we do genuinely spend time in the design of our programs to ensure that there is you know light at the end of the tunnel there is an exit strategy there is a a means to ensure that you know you can build or rebuild the resilience of communities um, so that they can ultimately stand on their own two feet that's easier said than done obviously and and you know from an academic perspective, um, it's one thing to see it written on the page, but it's very, it's very different to apply it um, in extraordinarily fragile states. South Sudan is a place where, you know, uh, we've seen um, a lot of the sort of humanitarian achievements, development achievements of the past be shattered because of, of this, you know, this period of, of fighting um, since independence. So, you know, the, the the peace agreement with Sudan, with Sudan in 2005 led to independence in 2011. War had started by the end of 2012, uh, 13, 14, ended for a while, started again in 16, 17, um, and, and formally has ended in, in February 2020. So, you know, the country is, is still very much picking itself back up. And communities are doing that. The government, this new unity government, um, clearly has a long way to go to spread and understand how to spread its budget across key areas of work. Too little money is put in into education. Too little money is put into agriculture. Too little money is put into infrastructure. Far too much money is put into security. Um, but that's because in a country that's been at war for, for so many decades, security has always been the priority. Um, we're working with the government to look at their policies and look at their long-term plans um, so that we can see this shift into more developmental areas and to ensure that, that they are looking at, at, at the long-term future of how to, to build a, 
you know, prosperous, peaceful nation. Peace is going to be is the key component here. Peace is the is where it all starts. For as long as there's fighting across this country, you're going to continue to see, you know, citizens of the country, the people of the country, be most affected. And you know, the most affected, the most vulnerable are the people on the humanitarian side that we're supporting. It's not easy. I mean, I think anybody who says it otherwise is is uh, is underrepresenting um, the reality that is um, a place like South Sudan. Um, but we do. I mean, like I said, we do see um, areas where you know we see hope. Um, we you know see the resilience of the communities we work with. We see their dignity. Um, and we know that uh, you know it, it, we need to have an approach which is very much based on you know the different and the very different areas of the country and the communities that live in those areas. You've got parts of South Sudan that you know since 55, 1955, since before 55, during the British uh, Egyptian mandates, and um, even before that had no investment whatsoever i mean you've got whole tracks of this country with not a single high school um and we're in 2021 um so you know, there's a lot to do uh, and i think you know patience is important persistence is important and of course you know not 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 giving up hope that we can actually you know achieve the kind of impact we want to achieve and, and bottom line um wfp has been here in south sudan for 60 years um, we want to be out of this country in the next 10 plus years. Uh, and that's what we have to work towards, doing ourselves mm. and job. How much of the fighting and the war is to do with scarce resources, do you think? Or how much is it to do? I mean, obviously, it's incredibly complex. Do you think that peace can be thought of in the context of resources that people are, are, are fighting about? Well, I think equity is one of the, the key issues that has been missing in this country forever. Um, there are communities who and people that suffer because of who they are and where they come from, where they were born, because they don't have um, the services uh, that you or I would, would find life very difficult to live if we didn't or hadn't had. So, you know, the conflict and the instability um, is very much based upon that. You also have uh, enormous isolation, as I said, you know, for a country five times the size of England, we've got a road, we've got tarmac road as big as the M1. Um, you know, so there's lots of places where people are genuinely isolated from other peoples, other communities, other tribes, um, and therefore their only interaction with them tends to be, you know, negative interactions. It's not, mm. they're not trading with each other, they're not you know, buying um, commodities, uh, food, um, services from one another. They, they don't have a linkage with one another. So if we can make a change uh, to having a more equitable um, you know, sharing of resources, uh, of infrastructure, or of investment, uh, of services, and we can link communities um, to markets, to one another, and demonstrate that, you know, that there are sort of progressive, positive uh, means and reasons to 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 work together uh, and, and come together. I think then we can we can make a change. But right now, um, that's that's one of the greatest struggles for, for a vast tract of this country and the communities that come from there.
Um, you know, the, the, there's a lot said about tribalism in South Sudan. I mean, there's more than 60 plus different tribes. I actually don't buy into the idea that it's it's the tribalism uh, or intercommunal fighting that creates the greatest uh, tension in the country. It's the inequity of the past and the present uh, and the isolation of the past and the present. And those are the areas that we need to focus on um, to make the changes so that communities will and can work together. I think we're nearly up in terms of time. So there are a couple of things I wanted to say. The first was just do you have any advice for young people who want to have a career in humanitarian work? Because I think that it's very inspiring to hear about what you're doing. And I think that people will think, gosh, maybe I could find some way of, of, of doing that kind of work. Uh, and the other thing was just really, I've been banging on about all the things I'm interested in. And I wondered if there was something you would like to say, just uh, something that you've thought of that's come up that you'd like to talk about. I mean, for I think I think the, the advice part for people potentially interested in, in, in joining the humanitarian field. I mean, the first thing, of course, is that it's a profession today. When I joined 25 years ago, this kind of work, people talked about misfits and missionaries and mercenaries. Um, they, they, they genuinely didn't look <laughs> at the humanitarian field as a profession. It's very much a profession today. And every skill, you know, that you would think was important um, in, in life, uh, if you were looking for a career in, in the United Kingdom is important here. You know, we have accountants, we have lawyers, um, you know, we have agronomists, economists, um, agriculturalists, uh, you know, we have people who are, are um, software developers, you know, database managers, innovators, you know, don't necessarily think that the humanitarian world does not reflect um, the, the, the normal sort of career choices in, in, in your own countries. We need professionals. And it's about then applying that knowledge uh, and that experience in the work we do. I came into, into this work um, from a logistics supply chain background. Um, you know, I could have been working for supermarkets or large manufacturing companies or transport companies. Um, I chose to do this, um, but it, you need to, to to recognize that you know you've got to bring skills, and and the days of the misfits, mercenaries, and missionaries um, has waned, um, and perhaps in, in many ways in a good way. Now the the other side of things, of course, is that if you are going to work in this this field, you want to work in operations in the countries where we are serving people. Um, I think there's there's uh, sometimes a, a very you know, a strong keenness to to work in the headquarters of um, the aid agencies or development agencies, whether it's New York or Vienna or Geneva or Rome. Or, you know, those are all support offices. Um, they all have very important functions. Um, but the work uh, that you want to do, you're going to find in you know in towns like Bentiu and Malakal and. Pieri and 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 uh, Pibor, you know, you, you need to get into the field locations uh, where you're going to live with the communities that you serve. You're going to work with the communities that you serve, and you're going to make sure that their voices are, are heard. Uh, and it's and the activities that that we uh, resource are ones that they need and want. Um, and that's that's where the fun is. That's where um, the the real impact is. 
um, and uh, not necessarily in the capitals. And I and I can I mean I can honestly say that it's it, it's, it's if you choose this career, um, you'll find many many challenges. Probably will spend some time away from family from time to time. You need to be patient and aware of that, but um, you're going to gain a, a wonderful experience as well. So I would heartily recommend it. I've had an amazing 20 years with the World Food Programme. Um, and before that too. I mean, otherwise, the, the things that, that concern us today, obviously the world has a tendency, has had a tendency to look inwardly over the last few years, particularly with COVID-19, because we all, you know, our own communities, the communities we come from, our own families, you know, the towns we come from. You're in Sherwood Forest. I was born in Sherwood. I was born in Nottingham. Were um, you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not really from Nottingham. As, as I said, I was an army brat. Um, but nevertheless, it's interesting that, that you're talking from, from my birthplace. You know, our own towns, villages, cities, communities um, are, are suffering. COVID-19 is difficult. The economy is difficult. But I think this sort of the, the positives of looking globally at the world and responding to, to the rest of the world's needs, recognizing that we are part of something much bigger. Um, than our own, you know, town, city, community, tribe, nation is really important. And, you know, the one thing that COVID-19 and the lesson from COVID-19 that should, should teach us is that we're all interlinked. And if we don't deal with, um, you know, crises that affect uh, communities around the world, um, it can come home to roost uh, and it will have an impact on us in one way or another, um, whether it's diseases passing around the world and pandemics, or it's just the fact that, you know, instability in, in other parts of the world will have ripple effects on our society and our politics, on our economies. Um, we're interlinked and we should not fail to, to recognize that. Um, and, and, you know, I think countries like the UK have been hugely generous uh, in the past in supporting countries around the world. I think there is a tendency to sometimes um, think that that's a waste or that's that's money going too far um, from our own priorities. Um, but I can assure people that, that there's nobody working in this field um, that doesn't respect um, where the money comes from and doesn't respect uh, um, who ultimately is is giving that money to governments who support organisations like like mine. Thank you, Matthew. That's really interesting. It's been lovely having lunch with you. I've learned so much. And um, just thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.